Well, we do appreciate the presence of each one here, each individual here. We have some visiting with us today. We're glad you're here. Hope that you'll have an opportunity to come back and worship with us again very soon. In fact, uh, very soon. I appreciate those who have led us in worship today. And I want to say especially I appreciate the good comments that people make as they lead us into the Lord's Supper and help us prepare our minds, focus our attention on the Lord's Supper, the, the, the work, the preparation that goes into that. You can see that from Jeff's comments today. Uh, he, he wasn't winging it, I don't think. Uh, he had put a lot of time and thought into that, and, and that, that's very helpful. That helps us to focus our attention on uh, Christ's death, uh, the purpose for that death, and uh, the blessings that we derive from it as well. So I want to continue talking about shaping our thinking and our behavior by Scripture, thinking biblically. And as things happen in the world around us, we see things happening on the news, or we experience things in our lives, you know, there are a lot of different ways we can think about those things. We might think about them politically. What's this going to do to the country politically? Is this going to help my political party or my political candidate? Or is this going to bring about some political change in our country, either for good or for bad? And so we can think about things from that point of view, and a lot of people do. We might think about these things economically. How is this going to affect me economically? Is this going to cost me money? Is this going to be beneficial to me financially in some way? And a lot of people think of things in their lives or things that they see on the news economically, or they think about them socially. And so here I have a group that I'm very much interested in, or I'm involved in, or I'm very concerned about. How do these things affect my group? How do they affect us socially? And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with thinking about things in those ways. Sometimes it's very good to think about things in those ways. But for our purposes, we want to think about things from a biblical point of view, informed by Scripture. What does the Bible say about what I see going on around me? Or what, is the, what do the Scriptures say about what I'm doing or what's happening to me personally in my life? And so that's primarily how we want to think about the world. What do the Scriptures say about it? What, what does the Bible say about it? We look to Scripture because it's the inspired Word of God. We look to Christ because Christ is the Son of God. We've said in our discussions that there is a spirit world or a spiritual world that's beyond our sight. We don't see it. We don't experience it through our five senses. But it is every much as real, every much real, just as real, as the physical world that we do experience with our five senses. God is the supreme being in the spiritual world, but there are other beings as well. There's a source of evil in Satan or the devil. Just as God has his angels, the devil has his angels. And we are spiritual beings as well, that we are made in God's image, that just as God is spiritual, there is an aspect to our being that is spirit as well, that we have a spirit or we have a soul that's going to go on living beyond, beyond death. When this physical body returns to the dust, our spirit will continue to live. Is there a purpose in our lives? Are, are we living to accomplish anything? Is there any meaning or significance? Or are we just hurtling through the universe 
just at random, no direction, no reason, no purpose. Well, no, what we suggested was that we do have purpose in our lives, and after all is said and done, our purpose, what gives our life meaning and significance is to fear God and keep His commandments. We saw that from the book of Ecclesiastes especially. Now, not everybody has done that, and that's what's wrong with the world. And so, sometimes we see something going on on the news, and we think, what is happening to our world? Well, sin is happening to our world. And so, people have rebelled against God and God's will for us, and that's brought about all kinds of consequences, very serious consequences. Well, is God doing anything about that? Well, yes, He is. And God is going to remedy the situation, maybe not... And, you know, in, in, within this world, in the confines of this world, but we're all heading toward a day of judgment when God will put all things right, when He'll hold accountable uh, those who have done evil, but He'll reward those who have done good. And so He'll deal with the sin problem in an effective way and do, do what's right. We also consider the question, what, what is truth and where do we find it? Well, that's an awfully important question, isn't it? What, what is truth, and where do we find it? Well, what, what is truth? Well, a true statement is one that reflects things as they actually are, <laughs> you know. It says, what is, is, <laughs> and what is not, is not. And so, truth is very important. We're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But it's very important that we pursue the truth. And we hold on to the truth. Or as the book of Proverbs says, we buy the truth and do not sell it. We don't abandon it. We don't give it up. We don't uh, exchange it for what is false. And so uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. I'll, I'll just resist that temptation for now. And where do we find truth? Well, we find truth in Scripture. Jesus says, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. All right, having said all that, a little bit of a review, let's talk about our topic for today. Some of the biggest changes in our world from my grandparents' generation, maybe, maybe my parents' generation, to my children's generation have to do with the attitude of people toward acceptable sexual conduct. Well, just think of the changes that we have gone through from my parents' generation, certainly my grandparents' generation, to the way my children's generation think about appropriate sexual conduct. Well, enormous changes, almost a complete 180, almost, I guess you could say, in the way people think about proper sexual conduct, and also connected with that in recent years, issues regarding gender, have arisen. And so we're going to try to talk about those two things today. Developing a biblical point of view, thinking biblically about sexuality and gender. Now those are two big topics, and I got about 25 minutes to talk about, to talk about both of them. There was a time in the not too distant past, maybe my parents' generation, but certainly my grandparents' generation, when sexual conduct outside of marriage was at least publicly frowned upon. Now, privately, I don't know what people might have thought, but publicly, 
if a woman slept around or if a man slept around, that, that, was, that was pretty much frowned on. But, but not today. That, that's not the case at all today. Statistics indicate that the majority of young men and women are sexually active before marriage. Not everybody. I don't want to give the idea that everybody is doing it. But, but most people, before they marry, are sexually active. And as a person uh, waits longer and longer to get married, the rate of premarital sexual activity goes, goes up. And so it's widely accepted, even expected, in the world today. Well, how should Christians think about sexual behavior and sexual conduct? It's a huge issue in our world. It, it seems to me, this is a personal opinion, I suppose, that some people think about sex as the new religion. This is the new religion. You have every right to practice this in the way that you see fit, and nobody has the right to question your commitment and your convictions on it. It's almost treated that way in our world today, but we want to think biblically about it, and so we need to ask, what do the Scriptures say about it? Well, let's, let's talk about uh, the appropriate, uh, pro appropriate way to think about sexual behavior. If you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we'll find God saying, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them and said... To them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature or every living thing that moves on the earth. And so he creates man, he creates human beings, male and female, and tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, of course, that's exactly what they do. The same thing is said to Noah after the flood, when Noah comes out of the ark after the flood, almost word for word, God tells Noah the same thing, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, the descendants of Adam and Eve are fruitful, and they do multiply, and they do fill the earth. You can see from Genesis chapter 5, for example, that uh, Adam uh, has, as you read through the passage, Adam has sons and daughters, and then Adam's descendants have sons and daughters, and, and then that, the next generation has sons and daughters as well. Sexual behavior is perfectly normal and healthy. There's not anything dirty about it. Now, you can distort it and pervert it and make something dirty and ugly out of it, but God created us to reproduce. God created us to engage in sexual Behavior. And so it's perfectly normal and healthy, and given the right context, even godly behavior. In fact, under some circumstances, if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a person would be ungodly, behaving in an ungodly way if he did not, or she did not engage in sexual behavior. So you're not to withhold yourself from your husband and, or, or wife. And so nothing wrong with it in the proper context. It's perfectly normal. God created us in this way. 
it's healthy, we might say even, even godly. God works fulfilling His promise, promise for example to Abraham, through His descendants. And so God expects His people to produce descendants, and eventually one would be born who would be the Savior. But unrestrained sexual behavior is not good for us. And so God regulates sexual behavior. And you might remember the passage we read from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 10 where God talks about His commandments and His commandments are for our good. And so He's given us these commandments because they're good for us. It's not trying to restrict us and restrain us from enjoying life or anything like that. He understands that unrestrained sexual behavior would produce terrible consequences for us. And so He restricts it and He restrains it. The Scriptures tell us the purpose for sexual behavior. And so let's think about that for just a moment. The first thing to to note in connection with that is the procreation of the human race. Sexual behavior is for the procreation of the human race to bring children into the world. You can see it from Genesis chapter 1, 26, 27, 28. God created man, He created the male and female for what purpose? So that they might be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's the purpose for sexual behavior? Primarily, I would say, for the procreation of the race. All right, now let me just make an observation there. Unfortunately, many consider this as an unwanted consequence, a danger, in fact, of sexual behavior. So the worst thing that could possibly happen is I might get pregnant. Oh, we don't want that. And of course, when we divorce sexual behavior from its intended purpose, like we've done, in separating it from the procreation of the race, we've taken the first step toward distorting and perverting the divinely established purpose for sexuality. We might add that if a person, a man or a woman, not prepared to have children, they need to avoid the behavior that produces children. Can, that's, I think most of us would agree with that. <laughs> If you're not in a position in your life prepared to have children, if you're not married, if you're not in a position to have children, you need to abstain from the behavior that produces them. And so here's first purpose for sexual behavior, the procreation of the race, to have children. Another reason is to bind the husband and wife together so that they become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. Paul very clearly associates that idea of becoming one flesh with sexual behavior in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so it's very clear in the New Testament, at least in part what it means by that, becoming one flesh is binding together, has a reference to sexual activity that binds the man and woman, the husband and wife together so that they become one flesh. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 5, and Paul quotes it in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11, both of them endorsing the idea that we become one flesh when we're joined together, husband and wife joined together. 
A strong emotional bond is formed and reinforced by this most intimate and personal act that a husband and wife shares together. And so, this binds a husband and wife together. It creates this emotional, personal, the very strong emotional bond together. It reinforces that as the years go by, that, that bond, that closeness is reinforced as the years go by. And so if sex is reduced to no more than a, an impersonal mechanical process, well then this ability to form an emotional bond perhaps is lost. If a person is promiscuous, they, they, they lose this ability to form. If it's just a casual, mechanical kind of impersonal uh, occasion, well, we're missing the purpose of sexual behavior, which is to bind husband and wife together in the most personal, intimate way. We share this relationship with each other, a relationship we share with no one else. Okay, so that's purpose number two. Sexual behavior within marriage controls the strong sexual desire that men and women, that both men and women have. And so you can see that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for, t for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this by way of concession, not command. And he goes on to say uh, that it's better to, to marry, he goes on to say, verse 9, better to marry than to burn. And when, when burn in passion or burn, burn with his sexual desire. So it's better for a man and woman to marry than try to control this strong desire that we're created with and, and, and perhaps put ourselves in a vulnerable, dangerous position by engaging in this behavior outside of the legitimate, divinely established context. And so it gives us the ability to control the drive that we have. And then lastly, the last point that I'll make here is that sexual behavior is, is uh, given this outlet within marriage to avoid fornication and the consequences of unrestrained sexual behavior. And so we've already seen that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so this gives us a legitimate context in order for this desire to be fulfilled so that promiscuity and unrestrained sexual behavior can be avoided and the consequences of that kind of behavior can be avoided. If we understand the divinely established purpose for sexual conduct, we can develop a biblical point of view. So let me look to the Bible. Let me see what the Bible says about sexual behavior. Let me develop a, a biblical way of thinking about it. And then, then I can understand it the way it, it's meant to be understood. Sexual behavior is to be practiced only within marriage. You know, God doesn't create us with a desire of, of any kind, really, with a desire or with a drive, without providing for us a legitimate context in which that desire can be satisfied. So it is with sexual behavior. He's created us with this desire, so He provides for us a legitimate relationship, a legitimate context 
in which it can be, it can be met, it can be satisfied. And that context is within marriage. Now that's widely rejected today, as we've already indicated. But as Paul says, let God be found true and every man a liar. Even if it means every man on earth is not telling the truth, God is going to tell the truth. And, and we need to accept it. That's what we're doing. That's what these lessons are designed to do. Help us develop a biblical, scriptural perspective on things. Well, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13, a passage that we quote from time to time says in verse 4, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed undefiled. Simply a, a figure of speech. The marriage bed is a, just a figure of speech for sexual behavior. And so the marriage bed, sexual behavior within the context of marriage, is undefiled. Now, anything wrong with it? It's good, it's wholesome, even godly behavior. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so fornicator, fornication is a word that refers to all forms of inappropriate sexual intercourse. And God determines what is appropriate and what is not. <laughs> all right, and so fornication and adultery are prohibited. And so sexual behavior is limited in Scripture to husbands and wives, a man and a woman bound together in marriage. So let's make a few observations. Same-sex behavior is contrary to Scripture and so forbidden. And so we're trying to think about things biblically and scripturally. Here's a behavior that's widely accepted in our world today, but it's contrary to Scripture. And so if we're going to think biblically about our world, we're going to have to affirm that this behavior is it's wrong. It's contrary to Scripture. And we see that from another, uh, a number of places. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is one. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators or idolaters, adulterers, effeminate or homosexuals will inherit the kingdom of God. But for time's sake, we'll allude to Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, and the Old Testament passages, Leviticus 18 and 20. And so, if we're thinking scripturally or biblically, well, homosexual behavior, same-sex conduct is wrong. It's, it's contrary to Scripture. And if our thinking is shaped by Scripture, then that's what we have to affirm. I'm sorry, my thinking about that is shaped by Scripture, so I can't, I can't agree with that. I, I believe that's wrong. Any type of sexual contact with a child or someone unable to consent would be forbidden as well. Now, we don't say very much about that in our sermons, but maybe we need to. Sexual contact with a child or someone unable to consent would be forbidden. The use of pornography is sinful for many reasons. Jesus, for one, says, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. But in pornography, we use human beings as objects and we degrade them. It involves us with the most despicable people on earth. Think about the kind of people who peddle pornography. They're peddling it. They're selling it. We're buying it. <laughs> we become partners with them. The most despicable people on earth. It takes over our lives. If we're not careful, it perverts a healthy, wholesome view of sex. 
So we live in a place and time when biblical thinking about sex is largely disregarded. People don't think that way anymore. You know, that's, that's kind of the prevailing attitude. People don't think like that anymore. But we want to respect what the Bible says. We want to think scripturally and biblically about these things just like we do all other things. So let's say a few things about the transgender issue that has kind of swept, swept the nation. Only a small percentage of people identifies transgender or non-binary or something like that, something other than the gender identity that they were born with. You know, you have to be careful about the language we use sometimes. You know, people manipulate our thinking by the words that they choose. I was thinking about the, the idea of assigning someone their gender. So they think differently about themselves than the gender they were assigned at birth. You don't assign gender at birth. <laughs> I don't believe. The doctor might observe your gender. He might even record your gender. But he doesn't assign your gender. You're, you're born with it. So just have to be careful about the language that's being used and how people are attempting attempting to manipulate our thinking and to shape our thinking through the language and vocabulary that's used. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Very few people go through with gender transformation, but many are defending it, promoting it, and demanding that the rest of the population do the same, foisting their point of view on everyone. You must think about this the way I do, or then you're, you're condemned if you don't. And this is going on not only among adults, but children as well. We want to think biblically about this matter, just as we do all issues. So what do the Scriptures say about gender? Well, we've already seen Genesis 1, 16 and 17, that God created them male and female. And so God created human beings with one of two sexual or gender identities. Either you're a man or a male or a female. That's how God created them. And God establishes a natural order. We'll come back to that idea in a few minutes. Human beings who are born men remain men in Scripture. Those born as women remain women. There's no arrangement made or expectation that changes would, could, or should be made. So God created the male and female in the beginning. And as we read through the Bible, a person that is born as male continues to be a male throughout his life. A person born female continues to be female. There's no arrangement made for any kind of transformation, no expectation that people would or should or could make those changes. few observations. Gender is a physical, an anatomical feature not a psychological feature. Our, our gender is it, it, physical. <laughs> it has to do with our anatomy, not our psychology. So it's a... Now see, that's true, isn't it? You see, a truthful statement is one that consist, is consistent with the things that, as they really are. <laughs> and so a person is born into the world, an observation is made, this is a male. It's, it's an anatomical feature. It's a physiological feature. We used to have a little dog. His name was Roscoe. I've talked about him from time to time. If I were to take Roscoe to the vet, and I'm, for the first time, I'm, I'm holding him in my arms, 
And the vet said, is that male or female? I wouldn't, he wouldn't do a psychological exam of the pet to find out if he was male or female. He would do an, an, uh, an anatomical. He'd look at his anatomy, he'd look at his body, and he'd say, oh, that's a male. And it wouldn't take him very long to do it, by the way. <laughs> and so this is a physical feature. It's not a psychological feature. People develop these anatomical features in the womb and have them at birth. And so you're born male or female. Now understand that there are rare physiological anomalies, but even these are physiological, not psychological. It's not, oh, I feel like I'm a female. These are physiological anomalies, not psychological anomalies. Second observation is this. There, there is a divinely established order in our world in many ways, and to, con- to act contrary to this order is sinful. God made, God made human beings male and female. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Adam and Eve produced sons and daughters. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 4. Their offspring produced sons and daughters. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, etc. We noted earlier in our discussion that Jesus endorses this. Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? For, and so there's a divinely established natural order. God makes man and woman, male and female. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They do that. Their offspring do that. Their offspring do that. That's the divinely established, that order was established by God in the beginning. For us to act contrary to that is a violation of the natural, of the divinely established natural order. And and it's sinful. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, Deuteronomy 22 and uh, in verse 5, the law of Moses says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And, And so there's a natural order. You're born a man. You're not to present yourself as a woman. You're born a woman. You're not to present yourself as a man. Culture recognizes the order that God has established. And observable differences between male and female are common. And so we understand that here's, these are males. These are females. Males wear their hair a certain way usually. And, and they dress a certain way. Females wear their hair in a feminine style and dress in a feminine style. That's the natural order as established by God. To transgress that is a violation of the order and sinful. So a man is not to dress and present himself as if he were a woman. That would be sinful. A woman is not to present herself as if she were a man. That would be a transgression of the order that God has established. In Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we see this idea applied to a little bit of a different, uh, although maybe related, situation. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. 
In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so they're acting in a way contrary to the natural order that God has established. And that's contrary to God's will and, and sinful. The third observation is this. For a man to present himself as a woman, or for a woman to present herself as a man, is to perpetrate a deception, to advance a falsehood. Remember he said truth is consistent with what is, the facts, things that the, as they actually are. And so for a man to say, I am a woman, is not true. He's not a woman. And if he presents himself as a woman, he's advancing a falsehood. It's not consistent with reality. Now why is this important? Why is the truth important? Remember the other day when we were talking about truth, we talked about someone who maybe is experiencing some bodily difficulty. They go to the doctor and the doctor misdiagnoses the problem. Can that person be treated effectively? No. Genuine success depends on knowing the truth. Okay? And so you can't have genuine success based on falsehood. And so whatever internal struggles a person is going through, he's not going to find genuine solutions in a falsehood. He must know the truth. And based whatever solution he, he's able to apply on, on that truth. Here's, here's an illustration. Here's a mom and dad, and they have a young daughter. She's 12, 13 years old. Let's say she's 13 years old. And they notice she's, she's not eating very much. She's very thin. And that goes on for a little while. And so they call her in, they sit her down, and they say to her, you know, we, we've noticed that you've been losing weight. You're thin. You, you haven't been eating. Well, what's going on? And she says, I don't feel that way at all. I feel fat. I feel like I'm heavy. And, and they say, you're, you're not heavy, you're, you're thin. You're not eating. Look, just look in the mirror. And she says, you know, when I look in the mirror, I see an overweight person. And they say, you're, you're not overweight, <laughs> you're underweight. But if that's the way you feel about yourself, we want to support you in that. <laughs> And we, we, we want to encourage you in that. If, if you feel as though you're heavy, we'll, we'll, we'll support you in that decision if you don't want to eat. Well, that goes on for a little while. They take her to the doctor. And the doctor says, well, well let, me, let, me, let me just ask you a few questions. You know, you're, you're, you're thin. And she says, well, I don't feel thin about myself. I, I, feel, I feel heavy. I feel like I'm, I'm fat. He says, well, you know, we, we weighed you. You weigh 75 pounds. <laughs> and she says, well, I, I feel like I'm overweight. And the doctor says, well, okay. I'm going to honor that. And I'll support you in that. In fact, let me write you a prescription for some appetite suppressants, for some diet pills. And I'm going to schedule, schedule you for gastric bypass surgery. Well, what, what, what do you think about that situation? <laughs> they're, they're not helping her, are they? They're not helping her. Why? Because they're not facing the truth. She's not facing the truth. 
The parents aren't facing the truth. The doctor isn't facing the truth. And so they're applying a solution that only hinders a real solution to the problem. Okay. That's why it's important to know the truth and to face the truth. The last observation is this, that the current attitude toward gender distorts its purpose. Why did God make human beings male and female? What was the purpose of that? Well, purpose is to reproduce, right? That's why you have a man and a woman. It's not, they're not made so that they can feel good about themselves. That they're made for a purpose. And, and, and when, we, when we get away from that purpose and we say, well, gender, sex, sexual identity is really yours to determine so that you can feel good about yourself, we've distorted or perverted the purpose for it. And that's, of course, problematic when we distort and pervert God's divinely established purpose for things. Well, our time's up. Appreciate your patience today. This is one of the issues that we need to think carefully about. It's going on all around us. Just new attitudes, new way of thinking. People have abandoned the scriptural way of thinking and embraced a non-scriptural way of thinking. But we as God's people, we want to commit ourselves to thinking biblically about these kinds of things, like, like we do all things. And that may put us in the minority, and no doubt it will at times put us in the minority. But we want to do that and stick to that, commit to that nonetheless, because we believe, you see, we believe that there is a spirit world that we're headed to. <laughs> and we're going to get there by buying the truth and not giving it up. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity to worship today. We pray that the things we've done have been pleasing in your sight. Uh, Father, we pray that you'll help us to inform ourselves as to what the scriptures say, that we'll, that we'll understand them, that we'll uh, apply them in the way that you would have us to apply them. Help us, Father, to think biblically, to think according to your word, to think scripturally, even if that puts us in the minority. Uh, in, in the world around us. Help us, Father, to be committed to that and to take a strong stand for what your word has to say. We're thankful, Father, that we have your word, that we have access to it, that it informs us as to what is right and wrong, that we might understand it, that we might hold to it, and that in the end, the truth of the gospel will save us and give us that home in heaven with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.